Welcome to another Finnegan podcast, where we discuss recent cases and topics impacting the intellectual property community. I'm Kim Foey Pereira, Director of Events at Finnegan. Today we are joined by Finnegan attorneys Mark Feldstein, Cora Holt, and Tom Irving to discuss the recent Federal Circuit rehearing case, GSK v. Teva, and Amarin v. Hikma. Hi, Cora. In the decision, in GSK v. Teva has created a stir in the U.S. pharmaceutical patent law community. Please give us the background of this case leading to the affirmance of the original Federal Circuit panel and denial of requests for reconsideration on bonk. Sure. Okay, Kim, thanks. Uh, you are right. This case has indeed created a stir. Uh, and I'm going to assume there's some familiarity. I'm going to try to keep this as high level as I can, but go through what's necessary in the background here so that we can talk about what happened at the Federal Circuit. So uh, the issue in this case really is what evidence can support a jury verdict of induced infringement in a pharmaceutical case. Uh, this case arose in Delaware in front of Judge Stark uh, with GSK suing Teva, alleging that uh, Teva's generic version of GSK's drug Coreg, a beta blocker um, used to treat various cardiovascular uh, conditions infringed on GSK's uh, patented method of treating car, uh, congestive heart failure. Now, a couple things that we need to talk about in terms of the regulatory background of this case. GSK had approval for three indications, hypertension, congestive heart failure, and a third indication, uh, postmyocardial infarction, um, left ventricular dysfunction. Teva originally sought approval for the generic version of all three uh, of these indications and received tentative approval for all three indications. When Teva received tentative approval, uh, Teva issued a press release and certain other promotional materials uh, stating that they had received uh, tentative approval for the AB-rated generic equivalent of Coreg. Now, fast forward a little bit. Uh, ultimately, GSK had a compound patent. That patent expired, and at that time, Teva sought to go to the FDA and actually revise their label, took out, no longer sought approval for the congestive heart failure indication. So at that time, Teva revised their label and then went ahead, got approval and launched. And at this time, they only had approval then of the two other indications and the congestive heart failure indication had been taken out. At that time, Teva again issued a press release stating that they had received now final approval of the generic version of Coreg. So, what that gives us then is a period of time where Teva is on the market uh, with this, what we're going to call a partial label. And this is a period of time that we're going to talk about in this case. There's other aspects, there's another time period in this case. We're gonna leave that off of our discussion for today. So uh, GSK sued Teva, asserting that Teva uh, was inducing infringement during this period of time that they had the partial label. The case was tried to a jury. Uh, the jury came back and rendered a verdict of infringement. Uh, in favor of uh, GSK. And um, then the, the Teva sought uh, JMAL in front of Judge Stark and Judge Stark went ahead and reversed that jury verdict. Judge Stark said that the um, period of time during which Teva was on the market with this partial label was not sufficient to support a verdict of induced infringement. So this case went up to the federal circuit, GSK appealed and was originally heard by a panel of Judge Newman, Judge Moore and Judge Prost. And that panel opinion came out, first panel opinion in October of 2020, and they uh, reinstated the jury verdict of infringement and reversed Judge Stark. So uh, in the original panel opinion authored by Judge Newman, 
the majority said there was sufficient ev evidence here to support a verdict of induced infringement by Teva during this partial label period. And what did the majority point to? The majority uh, spoke a lot about this evidence outside the label. Teva's promotional materials and press releases that had indicated they'd received approval for a generic version of Coreg that was AB rated to Coreg. There was also expert testimony in the record that a doctor would have looked to these materials and understood them to be an approval for all three indications of which brand name Coreg was approved, including cardiovascular uh, heart failure. Now, notably, this original panel opinion authored by Judge Newman didn't really touch much on the label language that remained in Teva's label. GSK had made a relatively strong argument, uh, both at the trial level and to the panel, that this wasn't really a true carve-out label. This wasn't really a true skinny label case. In fact, there remained label language in Teva's approved label uh, that would have induced the physician still to prescribe the drug four methods of use that would have infringed that card, uh, congestive heart failure patent. So uh, certain la language, for example, in the clinical studies section of the label and certain language in the other approved indications, uh, GSK said uh, would still have induced infringement of the patented method of use. Um, now, the, the majority opinion authored by Judge Newman didn't really focus on that the first time around. Uh, found, you know, focusing in on some of these other factors outside the label uh, as a support for the jury verdict of induced infringement. Judge Prost dissented in this original panel, panel opinion, found that there was not sufficient evidence of intent or causation sufficient to support a jury verdict of induced infringement during this partial label period, and that in fact, finding induced infringement during this time was contrary to the entire Hatch-Waxman scheme, which sort of sets up this uh, scheme by which generic companies are permitted to carve out indications in order to uh, evade liability for infringement. So this original panel opinion came out in October of 2020. What happened next? Um, I think it's fair to say there was a bit of an uproar in the community. Uh, various generic companies uh, were um, arguing that this case sort of eviscerated the entire Hatch-Waxman scheme. Um, that there was no point to skinny labeling anymore because they could be found to induce infringement even when they carve out a patented method of use. Um, Teva sought rehearing, uh, GSK opposed, several amicus briefs were filed, uh, including one by former Congressman Henry Waxman. And in a surprise move, uh, the panel granted rehearing in this case. Uh, they issued an order that said, we'd like to rehear this. Uh, please come back and argue it to us again. So the panel heard argument a second time on these issues, and six months later issued a second opinion, a revised opinion. They withdrew their first one, issued a new opinion in August of 2021, uh, this time per curium. And the big you know, ticket is same result, but slightly different rationale. And I think it's fair to say that the panel sort of walked its, its language back a little bit in the second uh, opinion. And rather than looking so much to the evidence like the press release and the promotional materials, the panel really homed in this time on GSK's arguments regarding language that remained in Teva's labels, despite the car, you know, the, the, the removal of the congestive heart failure indication, uh, there was still language in the label, both in other indications and in other sections of the label, that according to this revised panel opinion by the Federal Circuit, was enough to support a jury verdict of induced infringement. 
Um, there is a small twist in this new panel opinion that does sort of acknowledge um, interplay between induced infringement and other issues relating to use codes and orange book listings. And in fact, um, there was an acknowledgement by the panel that Teva has, has an argument, still a live issue below, that GSK should actually be a stop. Uh, equitably stopped from asserting induced infringement on the basis of the way it submitted its patents and use codes to the FDA. Uh, so that was a little bit of a new, a new point coming out of the uh, revised panel opinion. Again, we had a Prost dissent um, uh, making the same point she had made at the first time around that, um, and sort of agreeing with Teva's uh, position that if a, if a generic company is able to take an indication out of its label to find induced infringement in that um, scenario would be con contrary to sort of the Hatch-Waxman scheme. Okay, so what happened next? Uh, we have Teva again seeking a rehearing for a second time. And uh, this and again, we have, you know, briefing from Amiki and GSK in response. Again, six years late, six months later, sorry, not six years, although sometimes it feels like that. Uh, six months later, we get another opinion. This time, the en banc court does deny uh, Teva's uh, petition for rehearing. And we had four opinions, four separate opinions accompanying that en banc denial. The first one authored by Judge Moore, making similar points that had been made in the revised panel opinion. Second one authored by Judge Prost, again, dissenting from the decision of the court. And then Judges Dyke and Judge, Judge Reyna also offer, authored um, separate dissenting opinions as well. So uh, that's a lot to digest in a very short amount of time, but where does that leave us? Um, essentially, as it currently stands, GSK is the victor in this battle. Uh, the, they were successful in getting this uh, jury verdict of induced infringement upheld during this partial label period. And Teva now has the option to go ahead and seek Supreme Court review. So in terms of you know, the ultimate question that we're talking about uh, that gets us patent lawyers excited is, you know, what is the law of induced infringement in the pharmaceutical context? Uh, the re revised opinion that was issued by the panel is in fact the law of the land on that point right now. So Kim, that was a lot really quickly. Uh, I'll send it back your way. Thanks, Cora. We really appreciate the background. Turning to Mark, would you please explain whether or not this case post-launch, not an and action, and focusing on whether evidence supported the jury verdict is simply a garden variety inducement to infringe action and nothing to be overly excited about? Thanks, Kim. So GSK versus Teva, certainly is a very interesting case, and it is something to be excited about. Uh, there was a $235 million judgment in the district court case. Even in pharmaceutical land, that's a significant amount of money. And the legal issues and the factual issues it brings up are definitely things to be excited and interesting, interested in. So I'd say it's definitely not the garden variety inducement case. Um, the skinny label facts are relatively unique. Or the partial skinny label facts are relatively unique in inducement cases. And of course, the regulatory backdrop is extremely unique. And so you'll only see these types of cases in very limited circumstances. It's not definitely not the garden variety case. Um, that said, it doesn't purport the majority opinion doesn't purport to create new law. Um, as you said, as Cora said, it all turned on whether there was sufficient evidence to support the jury verdict. 
Um, the JMOL to reverse is a very difficult standard, especially in the Third Circuit. Effectively, the record has to be critically deficient. The majority found that it wasn't. And so that was what it turned on ultimately, I think, not a new understanding of the law, not abrogating um, the Hatch-Waxman Act. But what's clear, the one, one clear sort of legal message from GSK versus Teva is that merely having a skinny label does not insulate you from a finding of induced infringement. So the Hatch-Waxman Act can get you on, get you approval faster with a skinny label possibly, but if there's additional evidence or even evidence on a label, as Cora was saying that the revised panel opinion decided, um, it doesn't preclude a finding of induced infringement. So skinny label is not an absolute shield to induced infringement. I think that's what's significant from the case um, and will uh, be important over time. There's also significant is there's every reason to think that GSK versus Teva, the holding, what I've just mentioned about the skinny label not being an absolute shield, it'll have both the innovator and the generic pharma more carefully scrutinize post-launch activity, especially in the skinny label uh, regime. So it does seem unlikely that you're gonna get uh, analogous post-launch suits routinely. Um, and so again, it's not a guard variety situation, is not one that I think we'll see often, but I think we'll see it again. So back to you, Kim. Great, thanks, Mark. Cora, would you please explain what parts of the litigation strategy employed by GSK were most effective in enabling the Federal Circuit majority to conclude there was inducement to infringe by Teva? Sure. So, uh, you know, all the way through this case, GSK's position was that this isn't a true skinny label case. And this isn't, you know, a poster child for are we eviscerating the Hatch-Waxman scheme or not? In fact, if you look at the facts of this case, uh, there was label language that remained that uh, was, you know, sufficient to support an inducement finding that Teva was, in fact, uh, meeting that standard of uh, recommending, encouraging the uh, use of the generic drug to treat uh, congestive heart failure. And so in terms of what, you know, what did GSK do well in terms of litigation strategy, it's really just marshalling that language in the label was, you know, a hugely important fact for GSK, particularly in front of the jury. And then again, at the rehearing stage, for explaining to the court why this case wasn't a big evisceration of the Hatch-Waxman scheme like Teva and, and certain other of the amici argued. So that was that was a crucial point for GSK. And then the other thing, and, and you know, this is a lot of what Mark was alluding to, was really understanding that in a post-launch scenario like this, um, there's a lot of evidence that can be marshaled to support that evidence of uh, affirmative intent to infringe. And so, in that unique scenario where we have more than just the label to rely upon, but we also do have things like promotion, 
promotional materials, press releases, and then expert testimony that we can put in front of a jury and really have the expert explain how a physician in that field would interpret all of these materials that are out there. Uh, GSK really did a phenomenal job in putting that information in front of the jury, understanding that um, when you get onto appeal, uh, a jury verdict is reviewed for substantial evidence, inferences can be drawn, and so putting that information together in front of the jury uh, was really effective strategy for GSK on these particular facts. Great, thanks Cora. And Mark, what's next? How likely will Teva petition for CERT? What is the likelihood of success for Teva in getting CERT granted and then achieving reversal? Thanks, Kim. You know, if Teva does petition for CERT, and we'll talk about that, and if it does get granted, it's really hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do. So. I'm not gonna to try to predict the Supreme Court here, but I think what you can probably predict is a high expectation of what Teva is gonna do. And then some factors that are maybe in their favor to get cert, um, whether it happens or not, but there are some factors in their favor. So it's not uncommon at all for parties in high valued cases, which this is, that are dissatisfied with the federal circuit outcome to seek uh, cert at the Supreme Court. And you know, based on this, again, the, the dollar value of the case, the concern of it setting precedent, one might reasonably expect that Teva will seek cert. One might even bet money on it if one's a, a betting person. And what we know is that the, the lore and the statistics are that if you have amicus support, this increases the likelihood of the Supreme Court granting cert. And Teva certainly has that going for them. Uh, Cora mentioned that there was a fair amount of media support, including from former Senator Waxman. Um, and so they definitely had so far and presumably would, would continue to have uh, support for a petition. Um, what we also know is that conflict within the federal circuit, which is sort of viewed as the same as conflict between circuits, um, increases the likelihood of Supreme Court granting cert. And as Cora mentioned, there are a number of dissenting opinions on the on bank, and so Teva has that going for them also. However, the concerns, especially in the rehearing petition that the federal circuit was going to open the floodgates for some post-launch challenges to continuously harass and block generic products, just hasn't materialized. There were predictions of doomsday scenarios where skinny labeled generics would be keenly sued uh, based on the label alone, but that's not what's happened. And for example, to make that point, Teva pointed to a case in Delaware that was filed after the GSK versus Teva original decision where um, it was Ameren versus Hikma and Teva pointed to it as a, as a copycat litigation saying, look, this is the first of, of a snowballing effect of the case. Um, and here's the problem, it's a big, broad problem, but the case against him was dismissed. Uh, and so it doesn't appear, there's not the, the evidence or even the suggestion anymore that there's a wider problem beyond the specific facts of GSK versus Teva and the absence of a purported wider issue and limiting it to its facts, um, that actually is gonna mitigate away from Cert away from the Supreme Court wanting to consider the case. 
So again, it's difficult to predict what the Supreme Court's gonna do. There are some things that Teva has in their favor. There are other factors and possibly most significantly that, the, that it does not look like this a, a wider issue or a common fact pattern uh, suggests that maybe it won't go very far. Okay, back to you, Kim, thanks. Thanks, Mark. So what about the Ameren case, Tom? How similar is it to GSK v. Teva? And what does it mean in Ameren? There was no inducement to infringe? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I've been waiting to talk, and this is longer than I usually wait to talk. So I'm ready to talk. So this case is a post-GSK induced infringement, the way it came down decided. And here you've got typical story. Ameren's got patents. But it turns out there's a couple of things that are uh, indications approved, and the patents only cover one of them. So what to do? And so the way this comes, case comes out, and it's so interesting, in my view, is HICMA goes in and they get denial. They get they get they they basically get dismissal. Excuse me, not denial, dismissal. They get dismissal of the case against them, and they say, "Well, you know," and the court says, "Well, yeah." The broader category that's here includes both infringing and non-infringing uses, but it doesn't specifically encourage the use of the, of the generic for the non-infringing use. So they all slip out the back door. That's not going anywhere. That case has been dismissed. But what interests me, no end, guess who's left? The insurance company, the motion to dismiss <laughs> brought on behalf of HealthNet, the insurance company got denied. They're still in the case. And why, why in the world are they still in the case? Because it turns out two things, neither of which Mark or Cora mentioned, because they didn't come up in the GSK case. And this relates to what the insurance company does. And there are two things, formulary selection and prior authorization process. We won't belabor what all that is. You can read the case. It's a very fun read, particularly after you've heard the enlightened wisdom of Cora and Mark. But the deal was where this came out was basically the court said, no, we're keeping health net. That case is still alive because they placed the generic drug on a preferred tier in their formulary. And they said, well, it encourages the substitution of the generic for the branded drug, including for the patent indication. They distinguished GSK. They said, well, you know, in GSK, it was a, the, the broader category had both infringing and non-infringing uses, didn't specifically encourage one over the other. That wasn't the case for the insurer. So I don't know about you, friends and neighbors, I, I've now changed my salutation in view of the recent Supreme Court hearings, so I will call you friends and neighbors. So friends and neighbors, what I'd say, keep your eye on this one. This is going to be very interesting. What happens to the insurance company if they're like most insurance companies I know, they'll find a way to settle and maybe we'll never know. But it is just absolutely fascinating. So th thank you, Kim. Well, thank you, Tom, Cora, and Mark for such an insightful discussion. We look forward to seeing how these issues continue to play out. For commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit finnegan.com.